0: I think the the United Kingdom is slowly falling apart, you know, and, and I think this is both a cause and a consequence of Brexit.
1: It was one of the most shocking defeats for the establishment in recent memory, surpassed perhaps only by the upset in the U.S. presidential election four months later. In June 2016, British voters narrowly voted to leave the European Union. That British exit, or Brexit, deadline was set for Friday, March 29.
0: The eyes to the right, 242. The nose to the left, 391. So the noes have it, the nose have
1: it. Britain's parliament has issued a stunning new statement on Brexit tonight. It won't buy the prime minister's latest plan to leave the European Union. What it will buy instead is anything but clear, after rejecting her plan by nearly 150 votes. At issue is part of the plan that British Prime Minister Theresa May brokered with the EU, the border between Northern Ireland, which is a part of the United Kingdom, and the Republic of Ireland, an independent country and an EU member. From the early 1970s through the 1990s, during the violent conflict between Republican Catholics and Unionist Protestants, known as the Troubles, the UK government enforced border controls and established military checkpoints. The 1998 Good Friday Agreement ended the conflict and border controls were removed. May's plan calls for a backstop, keeping Northern Ireland's border open with free movement and trade. That means the UK would remain in the European Customs Union until it and the EU negotiated a new trade relationship. If the British adopt this plan, the country could continue to be subject to EU rules and regulations. And that's a big problem for those calling for a complete break with the EU. Are gonna be on time? Yeah, we still have time. What do you need to with? Well, um, we're trying to find the Lewis. It's right there. That's but... the art center. Ar- what are you trying to find, the, the s- library? The s- yes. The Lewis Library? Yes.
0: Okay, so that is on Washington Road. So you basically are going across campus. Okay. Just okay.
1: take that path. So take you go the path. T- Follow the yellow brick road. It's so, hard. so you go down <laughs> the stairs and just look straight and go straight
0: this and is go test
1: my intelligence. Fenton no O'Toole joins me today in Princeton, New Jersey to discuss Brexit, the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, and the future of the United Kingdom. He's the Leonard L. Milberg Visiting Lecturer in Irish Letters at Princeton University, a columnist at the Irish Times, and the author of Heroic Failure, Brexit and the Politics of Pain. Fenton, there's so many dimensions to Brexit that it's often difficult to understand. And one of the most complex is this Irish issue. People have been talking about the border. People have been talking about the fate of the Good Friday Agreement. That didn't really come into play until late in the game. It's as if no one in the UK, either the Leavers or the Remainers, thought about much of it either before or after the 2016 referendum. How is that possible given that the Troubles ended barely a generation ago?
0: It's a great question. And um, I, I remember, you know, watching all of those debates during the 2016 referendum, mostly on TV and, and shouting at the TV saying, when are you going to talk about Ireland? Um I mean, it was almost surreal, you know, that this very obvious question, it's not just that it wasn't being asked. It was just that it, when anybody did raise it, it was sort of deliberately avoided, particularly by those who were in favor of, of, of the UK leaving the, the, the European Union. I mean, people like Boris Johnson, I remember him being asked in one of the debates about, about it. And he started, I swear to God, he started talking about the Balkans. He just would not talk. He wouldn't say the word Ireland. He wouldn't say the word border. And so the reason, of course, they didn't want to talk about it is is precisely because it's complicated. And their whole um, dynamic really was there is a very simple narrative here, which is that the... Britain has been oppressed by the European Union and, you know, on this great independence day, we can suddenly be free, whatever that means. Um, and of course, the problem is that Northern Ireland complicates everything. It's a very complicated question and it it has um, a huge amount of historical resonance. Uh, it, it has a very recent history of violence. Uh, to borrow a term from health insurance, it's a pre-existing condition, you know, and and. In a way, the Brexit mentality was all about saying we can forget about all of history. You know, we can forget about the 45 years that we've been a member of the European Union. We can forget about the 30 years of the Irish Troubles. And of course, what happens is, um, you know, Freud wasn't entirely wrong. The return of the repressed, the very thing you don't want to talk about is the thing that's going to come back and and make your project unviable.
1: Take back control. Um, it resonated with a lot of people, obviously, in the United Kingdom. Why is that? Why um, – what about British and especially English identity that drives such a resistance to Europe?
0: So I think – and when I say this, people think I'm slightly crazy. But uh, uh, bear with me for a moment. Brexit is not about Europe. You know, this it's the hardest thing to grasp about it. It's not about the European Union. It's about Britain's relationship to itself. Over the last two years, the Europeans have kept complaining that the, the British are not negotiating with us, they're negotiating with themselves. And in a way, that's absolutely true and has a truth behind it, right? which is that this is really about a crisis of identity in Britain. And one of the weird things is that it's, just, it's a displaced crisis, really. So the British have, I mean, two big historic things that they've never really quite dealt with. One of these, believe it or not, is still the Second World War. I mean, it sounds ludicrous to say that, but something happened to the British which has never happened to anybody else in history, which is they won a major conflict, arguably the major conflict, the great existential conflict of the Second World War. And yet, within 10 years, they felt like they'd lost. Why? Because the very powers that they had defeated were doing better than them. By the mid-1950s, three Axis powers... Italy, Japan, and of course, Germany were thriving and the British were stuck. They were nearly bankrupt. They were losing their empire. You know, they were going in their own eyes backwards as a world power. That's never happened to anybody before. And it sort of fed into an idea that we didn't get what we deserved from the Europeans. You know, we either defeated the the nasty Europeans and the Axis powers, or we liberated every other European country. And look how they're treating us. They're They're doing better than us. And then, of course, the Europeans form what they called the common market at that time the kind of proto-European Union and the British first of all don't want to be in it and then by the early 1960s the British said oh gosh we have to be in it and they applied to join and the European countries say, no we don't want you. I, you know, that, that shock to the British system, I think they've never really got over. So when they do join, which is in 1973, I went back and I looked at a lot of the debates around it. And even the people who want to join, they're saying, where else have we got to go? We're we're kind of lost. We're no longer a world power. We don't have an empire. We, we kind of have to join this thing. But it's not a positive narrative about saying, isn't this a wonderful thing? look what it's done for peace in Europe look at the economic prosperity it has brought that, that's not the British attitude to it the British attitude to it is you know at, at best one of of, of resignation and, and at worst one of resentment It will be a splendid and decisive yes for Britain in Europe for your
1: generation and the whole of the next one I like this torch
0: The new young leader of the Conservative Party carrying a torch for Europe That's why we need every single conservative supporter, every opponent of
1: socialism, whether in England, Scotland or Wales, to turn out on Thursday, this Thursday, and vote for our conservative candidates. When Margaret Thatcher was the head of government, she really did sell this and she sold it in a way where it was going to bring prosperity to to Britain and to the British people.
0: Yeah, so, so so Thatcher comes in in 1979, and she's she's a very uh, conservative figure, obviously, and I'm very much a kind of British nationalist in the old sense. People remember her fighting the Falklands War and waving the flag. But Thatcher was also a pragmatist, you know, and, and, and Thatcher, of course, was very close to British industry, you know, to business. And one of the great ironies of what's going on now is that Thatcher was one of the people who really drove the idea that the European Union had to you know radically um, expand its remit so uh, uh, the single market right so so getting rid of all customs barriers, making something a bit like the united states in in trade terms right where you you know you don't have to check goods uh, you don't have to check services you can sell in the same market it was actually a very kind of uh, in a way a conservative business led project and thatcher was was at the heart of that and the British were at the heart of designing it and in fact, objectively, the British have been the single biggest beneficiaries of it. If you if you look at it economically, who has really benefited most from the single market? It's the British. So it's a very valid question, that is how do they come to be the people who who most resent it and who, who now have a narrative that we were trapped into this thing. It's and and that it was really the Germans winning the war again. You know, that, that we, we defeated the Germans. In 1945, they set up this European Union and they've trapped us in what's really a kind of German empire. I mean, it's a crazy narrative, you know, and, and it, it comes out of a very particular kind of mentality, which is one, I think, that goes back again to empire in a way. In an imperial mindset, you're either dominant or you're submissive. You're either the top dog or you're, you're being kicked. There's nothing in between. There's no normality, And 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 this idea that you're just you're one of a number of equal European countries who have a consensual, negotiated, somewhat tedious relationship. Uh, It's it's almost sort of too normal for this sort of reactionary mindset, which which then starts thinking, well, if we're not dominating the European Union, it must be dominating us. And this is really where the narrative comes from.
1: Where does this narrative start to show itself? Because when you go back and you look at the time of Tony Blair and Cool Britannia, and there was this sense that, you know, the Olympics were coming to the UK and our economy is going well and we're a place that people want to come to, people want to live in. Um, and there was a real sense of British pride.
0: There was huge, uh, uh, and real confidence in Britain, you know, and it was it was also great for Ireland because, you know, we're very close, we're very close neighbors and, and that confidence very much helped the Northern Ireland peace process. And, you know, it really was a very positive time. And as you say, in, in a way that was still present right up to 2012 when you had the Olympics, you know, the Olympic opening ceremony was a great celebration, not in a jingoistic, chauvinistic way, but actually in a very positive way way of British identity um, and and I think a lot of pe- British people felt very moved by it so it's a great question as to how does that turn sour and I think it turns sour because there are underlying problems right and, and one of the underlying problems is with Britishness itself. We now look back and we all should have and I blame myself as much as anybody else we should have seen this coming much more right which is from roughly the year 2000 you start getting and the, all the polls are showing this all the studies of public opinion are showing this a lot, the, the majority of people in England are no longer saying I'm primarily British. They're saying I'm English. Why? Because two big things have happened. One is the Northern Ireland peace process, which says Northern Ireland can kind of leave the Union if it wants at some point. And the other, even probably more importantly for the English, is the Scottish Parliament. So Scotland gets more devolved powers. You have a much more aggressive sense of Scottish nationality and Scottish identity. What starts to happen is, the English begin to say in response to this, you know what we're 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 not British. If they don't want to be British anymore, well, why should we be stuck in this thing? We're an old proud nation. We, we want to be English and. You know, look, this is perfectly legitimate. There's, there's nothing innately nasty about this. It doesn't have to express itself in kind of reactionary xenophobic terms. The problem is nobody addresses it. Nobody gives it any real substance. There's no political party. There's no newspapers. There's no TV stations. There's no poets. There's no artists. You know, it's sort of left to fester on its own. And coming in alongside this, then you have these very, very sharp, quite bitter social and geographical divisions. You have London, which is multicultural, which is booming, which is really at the heart of the economy, a couple of the other big cities. But outside of those big cities, you know, you have very large parts of, of England that are very depressed and where people have lost their old industries. I mean, you you know, mentioned Trump. It's very parallel to parts of the United States, You know, the Rust Belt. Um, and they're feeling neglected. They're feeling that nobody is listening to them, that nobody cares about them, all those kind of same things. And what you get is really a kind of fusion then of, of that sense of displacement and, and of dis, disenfranchisement with a sense of Englishness, which sort of expresses itself then in who, who can we kick? Who, can we, who, can, who, can we, who are we against? And the European Union is there as this sort of big target. One of the weird things, if you, if you look at studies all through the years... You ask anybody in Europe, in Europe, any European country, like how important is the European Union in governing your country? Right? Most people say, well, it's about maybe 10% of the government of my country. The English would say 35 40%. They have a hugely exaggerated sense of just how much the European Union controls what they do. So they, you get this mentality, and it's fed by the right-wing press. I mean, Rupert Murdoch's press, newspapers like the Daily Mail... It's a kind of game they play, which is everything is the fault of the European Union. Right? If you're a conservative and the conservatives are in power and there's still all these problems, it's very useful to be able to say it's not our fault. If it was up to us, you know we would we would we would make your lives better. But you've got these kind of crazy, interfering people in Brussels. You've got the Germans who are really kind of still malign. they're They're running this kind of conspiracy against us, and they're keeping us down. And it's very easy to make the leap then and to say, well, actually, if we just got rid of those people, if we got rid of that sort of allegedly oppressive infrastructure that's, that's weighing down on us, we would be free and we would be OK.
1: Let's go to the heart of the stalemate in the House of Commons, the Irish backstop, which stipulates that there will not be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Why is this such a complicated issue? And how could Brexit erode the Good Friday Agreement or even lead to its unraveling? So
0: I'm 61. Uh, so I grew up, you know, with 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 a border on the island I live in. It's a pretty small island, you know. Um, so so when I was a kid, you know, if, if we ever went to Belfast, I'm in Dublin, we go to Belfast on the train. We smuggle back goods, you know i I would be a skinny kid and I'd come back a fat kid, why, because I was wearing four layers of clothes. but your mother would take you up because clothes were cheaper and would put on the clothes, and it was a kind of a game, you know, but but you know, there were customs posts, you know you were your your bags were searched you you were very aware of the fact that. These were different jurisdictions and different regimes, and this was always deeply felt by a lot of people. So, unionists in mostly the Protestant community in Northern Ireland were very happy that the reporter was there, and by and large Catholics and nationalists were very unhappy that it was there because it was, you know, not not the way they saw themselves and saw their identity. But then, as you mentioned in your introduction, we had this kind of thirty years of of of, of you know really nasty, obscene violence. Which was largely about the border issue, you know, it was about you know is Northern Ireland part of the United Kingdom or should it be part of the United Ireland? Then, so this border, which was a customs border, was militarized as you as you as you mentioned, it became not just you know playing games with customs officers. It it became you know if you if you were on the road and you passed a border post, I mean, like. A, a young guy from England, you know, maybe eighteen, you know, would, would in in military uniform would stick a machine gun in your face, you know, and ask you who you were, where you were going, you know, soldiers, watchtowers, helicopters, you know. So for people who did this every day, because you know these communities are sort of on both sides of the border, you know, it wasn't real the real life of, of the economy and of society and of people was both sides of the border. This is a. It's something that's reminding you every day that you have to be conscious almost of the existential questions of your identity and who you are. And this fed the conflict. The wonderful thing that happened after 1998 was that you took all the military hardware out of it. And then we were already in the single European market. So you didn't need customs posts. So if I go now, if I go on that same train from Dublin to Belfast, I have no idea when I've crossed the border. You know, it it doesn't bother me. It's not an issue. And that's just me. But if you think about somebody actually living in the border areas where they might cross the border three, four times a day, it's a crazy border, right? So it was never really intended to be an international frontier. It was drawn up as a kind of temporary arrangement because you had problems, d- different identities and ideas in Ireland in, in 1920, right? And they just followed existing lines of, of very old county boundaries. So it would be like saying... Let's make the counties of New York into international borders. And you say, well, "What?" But they were never meant to be like that, you know. How do we police this? How does it work?
1: Maybe so, if it's Staten
0: Island. Yeah, maybe <laughs> the islands might work, you know. But so, so, so this this problem was over, and it was it was feeding into a peace process in a very profound way. So it just meant that people didn't have to think about this. They don't have to think about it. What do they do? They get on with their lives. They get on with just being good neighbours, with with trying to build ordinary communities and, and recovering from all this trauma. How do you then come along and you say, actually... Northern Ireland against its will because Northern Ireland voted against Brexit is going to be taken out of the European Union and the rest of Ireland is staying in the European Union therefore it's not just a a frontier on the island of Ireland it's a frontier between 27 countries and another country (laughs) you know becomes this major international land border the only real land border that the European Union will have with Britain after Brexit and this is just disastrous for, for everybody on the islands of Ireland. I mean, it, it just means economically it's terrible. These businesses can't function. It's the psychological and political disruption that's, that's, that's really, really, um, I think, unconscionable. And as we were saying earlier, they just didn't think about this. They didn't consider it. They didn't take it seriously. The problem is they have pre-existing obligations. I mean, Britain is the co-guarantor of the Belfast Agreement, which is the peace deal. You know, this is a, a solemn international treaty. It's registered in the United Nations. It's You know, you can't just tear it up. And one of the things the Belfast Agreement says is that everybody in Northern Ireland has a right to be Irish or British or both, as they may so choose. <laughs> you know? So you've got these people. You've got about a million and a half people. Okay, it's a small number of people, but uh, they have this dual identity. And that was respected in the peace deal. That's the basis of the peace deal. You can have a dual identity. Brexit says, well, actually, no. You're You're either in the European Union or you're outside the European Union. And everybody in Northern Ireland can say, well, actually, in that case, well, we could stay in the European Union. How could you do that? Well, we have a right to be Irish. We have a right to Irish citizenship. If we're Irish citizens, we're in the European Union. So that's where it gets very complicated, right? So you have all these people who can still be European citizens even after Brexit. This border will be hardened. You really believe that? How can it not be? Do you think that in our lifetime, there will be a United Ireland? I think there may be. Uh, I think it, it will be Maybe. something. See, you wouldn't have said that 10 years ago, would you? People are talking about a border poll. They're talking about joint authority. They're talking about Brexit may lead to United Ireland.
1: Brexit actually brought up the issue of reunification between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And then, of course, you know, there's also the resurrection of Scottish independence. How likely is it that Northern Ireland would reunify with the Republic of Ireland and how likely is it that Brexit will actually lead to the United Kingdom, the breaking up of the United Kingdom?
0: I think the the United Kingdom is slowly falling apart, you know, and, and I think this is both a cause and a consequence of Brexit, right? So one of the reasons why Brexit happened is that you had all these crises of English identity and, you know, Scottish nationalism, all those kind of things going on. And Brexit, it's a response to that, but it actually makes it much worse, right? So, so, um, you know, the, the Scots voted to stay in Europe. Being European is very strongly part of their identity. Northern Ireland voted to to stay in the European Union, and again, it's a very important part of their identity. So it's giving huge incentives to the Scots and the Northern Irish to leave the United Kingdom if Brexit goes ahead. But the irony is that also behind this, it's not even so much the Scots and the and the Northern Irish leaving it's, in a way, the English deciding they're not interested in them anymore. You know, what what we've seen since Brexit is, if you look at polls of English people who voted to leave the European Union, and you ask them, would the implosion of the peace process in Northern Ireland be a price worth paying for Brexit? 83% say yes. If you ask them, how concerned would they be if Northern Ireland left the United Kingdom and joined the Republic of Ireland, United Ireland? Over 60% of them say not really concerned. But they also say something similar about Scotland. So the English are now kind of willing to see Scotland and Northern Ireland go. And this is what we didn't ever think we would see. We always thought, you know, Scotland and Northern Ireland, if they were to leave, it would be a huge struggle with the English, you know, to, to, to preserve the Union. And it's almost like the English are kind of psychologically withdrawing from the Union itself. So what this does is it sort of speeds up processes that might have been happening anyway. I mean, maybe this long-term trend was present. But if Brexit goes ahead, and particularly if it goes ahead in a chaotic way, which it could, you could see Scottish independence within a decade. And you could also see a United Ireland within a decade. And the problem, I mean, the Scots are maybe ready for it, you could you could argue, but Ireland's not ready for United Ireland. You know, this is a very fragile, traumatized part of the world in, in Northern Ireland. It needed about 20 or 30 years of just settling down, just being left to get on with, with, with daily life, let the sectarian tensions kind of be bred out almost by a new generation of people. And we're being pushed towards this, Outcome, which for many of us, I'm and I'm an Irish nationalist in a very broad sense, you know, is a is a desirable outcome, but but it's it's not one I I want to see forced on us in chaotic circumstances right now.
1: Brexit seems to have contributed to higher popular support for the EU and the remaining countries, and even hardline nationalists no longer talk openly about following the UK's example what lessons should the eu take from brexit and what should its main priorities be
0: yeah it's 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 a great point you know i mean it's it's hard to remember now but in the immediate aftermath of brexit we were all kind of saying maybe this is the end of the european union you know maybe france will be next and then italy and you know the european union is over and exactly as you say, it's had the opposite effect, which is in the short term, it has consolidated the European Union. Firstly, because the European Union has been very impressively united in terms of Brexit. It's kind of stuck together. But also, as you say, Brexit's been such a mess that people who were casually talking about the European Union three or four years ago are now saying, well, maybe we shouldn't go there. you know, Maybe it doesn't look quite so attractive after all. However, my worry is that this Short-term gain for the European Union will lead to a certain kind of complacency. I think one of the tragedies of Brexit actually is that it distracts in a way from the fact that the European Union has real problems. You know, has real democratic problems, has real problems of, of direction, and in particular has real problems of of purpose. Um, the European Union had a distinctive economic model, and that distinctive economic model was it was about was a kind of social democratic model. It was about uh, equality. It was about inclusion. Uh, It was about why? Because it was burned into people's heads that the European Union was an alternative to two things. One was communism and the other was fascism. You know? I mean that's really what it was about. You had to have a market system, a capitalist system if you like that was at the same time capable of stopping people from becoming so anxious and concerned and insecure that they were going to be attracted to fascism uh, and have enough of a sense of equality and opportunity and hope for ordinary working people that they were not going to be attracted to communism. That was really what it was about. And I think, you know, with, with globalization, with all the things that happened after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the communist threat was gone. They thought all the fascist threat's long gone. We don't need to worry about any of this kind of stuff. And we can just kind of go into a sort of neoliberalism we don't have to worry about massive inequality. We don't have to worry about economic insecurity, and of course, the lesson is that we do have to worry about these things. The founders of the European Union were absolutely right that there's no there's no sort of default stability in societies, and certainly not in democracies. You know, if if, if people don't feel that their lives are getting better particularly that the kids' lives will be better than their lives, then democracy is in big, big trouble. And, you know, European democracy is in trouble. You have the rise of the far right. You already have authoritarian regimes within the European Union, in Poland, in Hungary. Um, And so one of the real problems with Brexit, actually, is that it's, it's, it's a completely pointless exercise. It's sucked in enormous energy, enormous concern. People like me are writing about it all the time, and maybe we should be writing about other stuff. But what it means is that There's a certain kind of complacent lesson to be learned from from Brexit, which is quite dangerous. The European Union should not be complacent. It actually needs to be thinking about what are the underlying forces that create something like Brexit. Brexit should be seen as an alarm clock. And at the moment, you know, there's a temptation for the European Union to, to, to switch off the alarm and turn over and go back to sleep. And it really needs to wake up.
1: Assuming that Britain does eventually leave the European Union could it ever return
0: absolutely I mean I think it I think it will have to return you know I mean in, in the end geography is destiny you know we may be very globalized but you can't take Britain and tow it out you know and put it off off Manhattan you know it, it, the, the brexiters have this fantasy of global Britain you know a, a, as if geography no longer matters I mean the fact is that 44 percent of their trade is with continental Europe um, their political interests are very much aligned with those of continental Europe. They are a European society and always have been. I'm not a betting person, but if I had to bet, I still think they won't leave, uh, even even at this kind of late stage. Um, I've been saying for about two years that a no deal would be impossible and a deal would be impossible. <laughs> and if you can't do a deal and you can't do no deal... What can you do? Uh, you have to think again. You have to go back. I mean, remember two things. One is that the the Brexit that was offered to people was a fantasy, you know, and therefore it died on its first contact with reality. It was dead on arrival. You know, it it, it was impossible to ever put into into political. Uh, reality. The second thing to remember is that, and this may sound a bit ghoulish, but the British population has changed a lot since June 2016. It's a very narrow vote, and it's a very generational vote. Two and a half million people uh, have died who were on the electoral register in 2016. They're older people who overwhelmingly voted for Brexit. And they've been replaced by, you know, over two and a half million people who have now become 18 and older. ...who are overwhelmingly in favour of staying in the European Union. So it's it's a different group of people. They would probably think quite differently about this. And I'm not saying that you know, a referendum would definitely uh, reverse course if it were held today... ...but I think there's a very strong chance that it would. I think there's a huge amount of buyer's remorse. People don't want to lose face. People don't want to be told you made a big mistake... But they did make a big mistake. Objectively, this was actually a pretty terrible thing to do. It's an act of self-harm. And I think it's still possible, out of them almost having no other option, that they will end up going back. They're going to have to ask for a very long delay from the Europeans in in the process. They're not going to leave on March 29th. We know that pretty much for certain. Uh, A couple of months delay is not going to achieve anything, so I think they're going to have to ask for a, a long delay. And the Europeans are going to say, for what? What do you want to delay for? They're going to have to say, well, because we want to think again. You know, we need a space in which to think again. And, and, and maybe I'm a deluded optimist, but I still think that space is open. And to be com- entirely deluded, um, it could turn out to be a good thing.
1: Fenton, we end each segment by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope?
0: What gives me hope... It, <sighs> Is that all the really negative things we're seeing in the world, and God knows we're seeing a lot of them. You know, there, we, we are in a very, very dangerous, difficult period for democracy. But I think we have to remember that they're all reactions to really positive change. You know, one of the reasons why the far right is on the rise is because people are scared of the fact that, you know, America, for example, is 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 not going to be a you know, a white majority country, and the fact that actually an awful lot of people are are you know underlying quite happy with that. That you know, the, the these uh, there are extraordinary things happening in the world in terms of the ability you know to to share space, to be part of of, of, of a new community. Um, the the stresses that that are are are. Uh, evident in this kind of toxic masculinity for example you know i have to remember their their reactions to the fact that women are finding their voice you know they're not coming from nowhere you know they're they're, they're coming from the fact that feminism is the most profound cultural change of our lifetimes and 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 has been Working through for for many decades now, back and forward with with reactions to it, with 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 you know often a lot of viciousness, and we're seeing that reaction, but but the reaction is only there because something is happening. I, I just think we're seeing something quite profound in the in the early twenty first century, which is that you know human beings are beginning to ask not what am I willing to die for, but what can I live with. And it turns out that human beings can live with an awful lot more complexity and ambiguity and openness than they were ever given credit for before.
1: Fintan, thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Fintan O'Toole, the Leonard L. Milberg Visiting Lecturer in Irish Letters at Princeton University, and the author of Heroic Failure, Brexit and the Politics of Pain. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosly. P.S. Podcasts is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Donna.